Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. My name is Kyle Krieger. I'm thrilled today be, to be joined uh, by my co-host, Wilkie Law. Will, what's going on? Hey, how's it going, man? Enjoying this uh, Texas winter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you introduce our guest today because I know we've been talking and you've been super excited to, to have him on. So why don't you go ahead and introduce? Yeah, well, we're excited today to have on as our guest... Uh, Dr. Pedro Nogueira, um, it's been, I've followed you for a while, um, just listening to the things that you say and your stance in education, and I really do appreciate what you're doing. And then, we, again, we've said it before, but we appreciate you for taking the time to have a conversation with us about education. So our guest today is Dr. Pedro Nogueira. So how are you doing today, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Glad to be with both of you. Awesome. So, uh, Dr. Nagara, if you could, just for our listeners, just give, I, I know your background's extensive, but just kind of give us the cliff notes of, of how you got into education and the work you're doing right now. Um, I started uh, my career teaching in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and then moved to uh, teach in Oakland and Berkeley, California. Went to graduate school there at Berkeley and then went into academia, but continued to work with schools around the country um, and uh, as an advisor and, and, um, and, and even throughout the world. So, so what, how, how did you make the jump from Providence to California? Well, I was uh, a college student in Providence at Brown University. Um, that's where I got my teaching credential and I started teaching there at Central High School in, in Providence and then moved from there to, um, to the Bay Area when I started graduate school, but I continued to teach um, in, in Oakland and Berkeley schools. And how long, how long have you been in, in what you call academia, doing, doing the work that you're doing now? Oh, about 30 years. Wow, so how much, how much teaching experience do you have overall like that encompasses what you've done? About 30 years, maybe more. Jeez, please. well, this is this is a question that we we try to ask everyone that comes on. Do you was there ever a teacher that really stood out to you as someone who was impactful, or was just your your favorite teacher that really had an impact on you? Yeah, I would say I, I, I've been lucky because I, I, I could name you know a few um, that have been really impactful. I remember uh, in eighth grade um, having Miss Harris uh, and for algebra. Uh, and I remember um, being a person who didn't particularly like math, and Ms. Harris uh, you know, told us at the very beginning of class, she said, you kids are lucky because I'm the best teacher in the school. And, uh, and I learned quickly what that meant is he was good at teaching all kinds of kids, not just kids who don't need much help. Um, mm -hmm. Ironically, there's a lot of teachers who think they're good, but they can't help kids that need help. Ms. Harris knew how to help kids, and she asked, she said, who struggles in math? And I raised my hand and she said, okay, you all sit up front. And because uh, I'm be checking on you all the time to make sure you're with me. Because she understood if you weren't with her in September, you certainly wouldn't be with her in, in May or June. Uh, and, and she was the kind of person that was constantly looking for the evidence that you were learning. Uh, and I often say Ms. Harris uh, wore a lot of perfume. And so uh, if you weren't paying attention, you're going to end up smelling like Ms. Harris too. Because uh, she's a hands-on kind of teacher. So, um, you know, I've had others like that. Uh, Mr. Weiss, who got me to appreciate uh, Romeo and Juliet and Shakespeare uh, when I was in the seventh grade. And uh, these are teachers who I think had very high expectations, high standards, but 
but also knew how to get kids engaged, get them motivated and excited about learning. So you come, you said something that stood out to me is that, you know, you, there are teachers that you see, and you still see this now in your work, right? That think they're great teachers. And then there are the, the really great teachers. What do you, what is the difference between someone who is that really great teacher and someone who just thinks they're a really great teacher? I think there are a lot of people who confuse um, being rigorous um, with simply holding a, a high standard, but not really doing the work to get kids to meet the high standard. Um, because they're more focused on covering material than they are on generating real evidence that kids are learning it. Um, and and, I, and I, I see that a lot in schools. I see schools where there are lots of kids struggling and teachers who basically blame the kids for their struggles. Um, I'm lucky because I've also seen and worked with many teachers who understand that, that the real, the, you only know if you're a good teacher if there is evidence of learning. And uh, you've got to find ways to get kids motivated and engaged. Um, you've got to know your students so you understand uh, how to make the material relevant to them. And you have to understand where the gaps in learning are so that you can address those. Uh, and I think when that all comes together, we can see really powerful teaching and learning take place. Mm. You know, I, I, as you were speaking just now, I thought about that because I think that word rigor, we've thrown it out into academics and we think that that we think that it means one thing and we primarily relate it to the teaching and like i like the fact that you said we have to focus on the learning because there are a lot of great teachers but the evidence of that learning is not there and i told you know when i started my news my new position here i went back into the classroom uh this year and i told my principal i said i'm not the best math teacher in the world i know that but i am a great motivator for students because I focus on student learning the whole child and, and I think that that has been my hallmark <laughs> and I think that now in December I'm seeing the fruits of that in my students speaking my language you know yeah. asking themselves questions that ask them and pose to them so that they can help themselves through their own problem solving versus always having to have someone to spoon feed them the information that they need to get ahead so I no, love I that. That's, uh, I like the way you put that. Um, I always say that great teaching is like great cooking, right? How do you know someone's a great cook? Well, people tell them that was a great <laughs> meal. They want more. Uh, the food is good for them. And, uh, and, and the evidence is there that the person knows what they're doing because uh, people compliment them. I say the same is true about teaching. Um, we know a person's a great teacher when the, when the students are telling them, wow, um, you know, that really had an impact. You, um, um, I learned a lot from you. Um, when, when, they, they, when the learning is substantive, um, it really shows up in the skills um, that kids acquire and the content knowledge they acquire. And, 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 and when it has a lasting influence on, on the students. And uh, hopefully most of us have, have had teachers like that. Um, the real problem is that we don't expose new teachers to what great teaching is uh, nearly enough. In too many schools, teachers work in isolation. And, uh, you know, we, we assign the newest teachers, the most challenging kids, uh, and, and we set them up uh, for, for problems and, and often to fail. And so there's a lot we should do differently if we want to really encourage excellence in teaching. But a lot of it starts by seeing teaching and learning as connected. Mm. So 
when when we were talking with you earlier, you know, as we we're leading up to this, you you mentioned that you really wanted to talk about um, the the 65th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education and, and its relevance today. So to get us kind of started on that topic, you know, could you give people just a, a rundown of the, of the details of that again? Because I mean, it's I learned about it in my history classes more than I learned about it in my education classes, and I think I'm not alone in that. Yeah, you know, we will be um, recognizing this spring the uh, 65th anniversary of the Brown decision. And I, I think it's important to, to understand how significant that decision was. It was a unanimous decision, ruling by the court, which um, basically ruled that the separate but equal was no longer permissible, unconstitutional. Because throughout America, we had basically maintained apartheid in education, and we relegated black children Latino children in many cases, because Mexican children and, and even Asian kids in parts of the country were segregated uh, to inferior schools where we spent less money on them, that sometimes even had a shorter school year. And we knew that this was a way to maintain an unequal society. So the courts ruled that that had to stop. However, they didn't give a lot of guidance on how to stop it. Uh, in fact, the language they used was uh, do it with all deliberate speed. And um, as we can see, um, the speed hasn't been very, uh, very quick at all. In fact, we throughout the country, we see that we're a reversal occurring. Schools becoming more segregated um, by race and class. So we have a kind of hyper segregation where we concentrate the poorest kids into underfunded schools. And often these are the schools that are failing. Uh, and so I think it's a time when we think about what Brown did, uh, because Brown, the Brown decision not only uh, marked the end of segregation in schools. It also served as precedent for ending segregation in housing, in transportation, in voting, etc. Uh, so it, it's really significant in many ways for civil rights, but uh, the work in education has stalled and, and, and be, begun to uh, go in the opposite direction. And we, we suffer the consequences of it as a society. So what do you, what do you think are some of the, those consequences that you say you you're talking about, but I'm really interested uh, when they set this out, were there ever unintended consequences? I mean, do you, do you think the intention of it was true to, to what it was meant to do? Or do you think there was an understanding that it, it was going to kind of be the way it is because it's 65 years later. And like you said, it's seeming like we're reverting back to that more and more. Well, I, you know, again, this is history, but it's an important part of history. Um, in 1957, a Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, felt it, it was so important to enforce the court's ruling that he dispatched troops to Little Rock, Arkansas, right, the 82nd Airborne, to forcibly integrate Central High School, where nine black students for an entire year were escorted to school by, uh, by the military, by soldiers, because there was a violent mob ready to attack them for entering that school. Um, and that, I think, both shows the significance of the resolve on the part of a uh, uh, U.S. president, but also the depth of the opposition that was there. The opposition didn't go away just because uh, those students ended up going to school. The opposition was very much alive in places like Boston and uh, in the North. And, and you had a, a case in, in Virginia where whites boycotted school for several years rather than to integrate. And, um, and so the opposition to integration is still there. We still find cases of districts that have seceded rather than um, integrate their kids. We saw a case recently in Nashville where they 
went to a more segregated schools, and the courts have made it more difficult in recent years um, by, by getting, taking away a lot of the measures we had to integrate schools. Uh, and what I, what I find um, troubling um, is that people don't understand why it matters, um, why it's important in a society that is as diverse as ours, that is becoming more diverse, because um, you know, just a few years, majority of children, already the majority of children in our schools are children from uh, minority backgrounds, racial minority backgrounds, um, and that will be true of the country as a whole in just a few years. Um, and it's not because of immigration alone, it's because of child birth patterns. That increasingly what that means is that the, the young people in our schools today are going to be responsible for taking care of the older white population. Because the old white people in America will rely on young people of color to work and get jobs to support their pensions and retirement system. That's how the system works. You rely on the workers now to support the retirees. Um, and so I, I try to explain to people, even if you don't care about integration, if you just care about your pension, you should care about making sure that kids are getting an equitable education and making sure that they are well prepared to um, support themselves so they can support you in your retirement. I've, I've never heard it explained that way. I've, I've never even comprehended that, that it's as simple as that for people. I mean, because I, I, I'm from, I grew up in Wisconsin, but I grew up in small, small, small town Wisconsin. And Wisconsin is one of the most segregated cities or states in the country because the majority of their minority population is surrounding in Milwaukee. Right. So it's, I, I, I didn't grow up seeing it. And then I taught in Houston for eight years and I saw it there. So now my perspective is, is just changing. But how much, how much do you think our society has changed uh, withholding the technological advances? How much do you think our society has changed in 65 years? Well, it, it still changed a lot. And because I, I, I think I should add here that although we have many black and, and Latino kids who are attending segregated schools, increasingly white kids are, are, are attending schools with kids of color. Now, again, it's smaller numbers, but because the country is changing, um, you're seeing, I mean, the number of whites who are, are going to school that are racially homogenous has actually declined. Now, the, the percentage of children of color is, is maybe small in many of these places, but people of color live all over America, right? Um, and it's not just in the cities. So while Milwaukee may be segregated, you're finding children of color um, all over uh, Wisconsin mm -hmm. and, and states throughout the country. Uh, and so the perception might be that we are more integrated than we are until you go into our cities and you mm -hmm. see, oh, the, 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 it hasn't hit uh, these areas. And, and surprisingly, even in cities like Los Angeles and Denver and Seattle that are going through rapid gentrification, where you see a large number, of, a large influx of affluent whites now moving in, you're not seeing integrated schools. And that's because there's not been the leadership in these cities to create high quality schools that would naturally draw families from diverse backgrounds to learn together. And even Houston is the same way. I mean, you can right. see the same thing here in Houston. Um, you know, I, I tell people the story. I grew up, uh, my first K, K-8, K-9 was primarily all black schools. Uh, granted, we did not have all black, we did not have all black uh, educators. But the majority of the people that were there were, you know, predominantly black. 
with sprinkles of Hispanics. And now those same schools, when you go back into them now, they're more of a 50-50 split between the Hispanics and the African-Americans that are kind of flooding into those areas. And even in the areas, like you say, where the gentrification has started taking place, the students are not in those schools, in those neighborhoods. Right. You know, you see the evidence of the, of the mixture, of the, of the, you know, integration, but the school system is still not integrated. I mean, there are still predominantly white schools sitting almost in the middle of a predominantly minority neighborhood community. You know, and and what I like versa. to remind people is, is why it's important. You know, I gave one one reason. You know, we're just talking about the pension system, but but beyond that, you know, when when we learn together, we learn how to live together. We learn mm-hmm. how to function as a coherent society. Uh, we draw strengths from our diversity. We see that at the Olympics. We see that in the military, where we the military is one of the, the most integrated and most diverse institutions in the country. So the benefits of integration are, are there too, um, but uh, it's hard to address the deep prejudices that are still very much alive and actually growing right now under this administration because we've seen a rise in kind of right-wing extremism um, and we've seen an, an open expression of bigotry increasingly. Um, but I, 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 my hope is that this is a temporary kind of backlash and we will return towards um, becoming society that's more uh, open and, and, and accepting of our differences. Um, the simple fact is that you look at the census, you will see the number of kids who come from mixed race marriages and, and relationships has grown and is steadily growing the number of, of people. Uh, I have a colleague, uh, she follows the uh, personal ads in the newspapers and online. And uh, one of the things she points out is the number of people who specify the race or the gender of the person they're looking to connect with uh, has de- declined. People just want a, another human being of any race or gender to connect with. So uh, <laughs> things are changing. Attitudes are changing. And you see that especially amongst young people. But it takes time. So right. And I think, that's, I think that's the most important is that we have to get it in the children. It's the children that will change it because they're the ones who – you know, I tell people, you don't, young babies don't know hate. They don't know because you're different, I'm not going to talk to you. They know you're different, so that makes you even more attractive to me. You know, I want to know something about you. I want to know why your hair is like this, why your skin color is this way. There's, we're more attracted by, the children are more attracted by our differences than we are as adults. No, it's true. And children are, are, are much more open. And if you provide them with positive experiences and you teach them respect and in, empathy and um, how to live and work together, then, then that does, in fact, result in change. I, I went to integrated schools myself. And while it wasn't all um, uh, you know, civil or, or, or uh, comfortable all the times, um, the fact that I knew how to work and learn with um, white students and people from different backgrounds and played, you know, sports with them, prepared me for college where I was, you know, attending an Ivy League school. I was, um, you know, one of few students of color. Uh, but fortunately, I was not intimidated in that setting because I had attended integrated schools before that. So the benefits are, are multiple, but I think they're often unrecognized. So in, in our society today, what do you see as the the greatest benefits our students are seeing from going to integrated or diverse schools? I think the the main benefit is for those who do go, a reduction in prejudice, a reduction in 
the kind of intolerance that our nation has um, known for so long. Um, I think that um, the other benefit is that when we learn together um, and when we learn to deal with our differences, we're better at addressing conflicts, we're better at, um, at navigating the world. You know, we live in a world where speaking more than one language is a real asset. Well, we shouldn't be afraid of that and having people who speak different languages in our schools. Uh, our diversity is our strength and, and kids who understand that are better positioned to, um, to, to deal with the complex world we live in today. Do you, do you find that there is, this is not exactly the way I would want to phrase it, but do you find that there's a better caliber of teacher at more diverse schools than more homogenous schools? Or do you think there's great teachers and not so great teachers in both settings? I think it's hard to generalize and, you know, great teachers show up in all kinds of places and so do not so great ones. (laughs) (laughs) But are there, are there, so then let's, so kind of coming back to if, if you're working, let's just say you're working in a very diverse school, you know, what's the best advice you would give to, to those teachers who are working with those diverse student populations? Well, first, I, I would say uh, you have to really examine your own biases um, that you were raised with. All of us are raised with bias. We get it from our parents. We get it from our loved ones. Um, and, and if we're not willing to examine them and be open to unlearning them, we will invariably pass them on to the kids because the kids can tell right away if you don't like them mm-hmm. or if you're afraid of them or if you um, uh, would rather not get too close um, so we have to be willing to do that kind of introspection. But beyond that, we have to be embrace the opportunity to learn, to learn from our students, to learn from their families, the communities that we work in, uh, to read um, and, and become informed about our history um, and before, become informed about other cultures and experiences. If we see this as a matter of personal growth and professional growth, then I think um, it, it becomes uh, something that it just is an ongoing part of becoming a more effective professional. And that's something I think all of us should embrace. Truth is that that's happening in other fields, not just education. Uh, In healthcare, you know, there are medical schools now that recognize if you can't work with a variety of patients, you're not gonna be an effective doctor or nurse. And so they're they're, uh, they're training uh, doctors on how to be culturally competent, how to um, work with people from diverse backgrounds. So this is not simply an issue for educators, it's an issue for healthcare, for law enforcement, for a variety, any, any sector where you are interacting with the public, you need to work, know how to work with people from diverse backgrounds. I guess then my follow-up to that then is, you know, coming from where I came from, which is small town Wisconsin, you know, primarily white. For teachers who are teaching in those kinds of schools, how do we prepare kids for the world you just described when they don't get a lot of experience with people of diverse backgrounds? Well, I think uh, we can do it in a number of ways. We can do it through literature, getting kids to read um, and learn about the backgrounds of other kids. Um, I remember uh, my daughter, when she was in high school, reading uh, The Kite Runner, which was about Afghanistan. And uh, I saw her one day on the, on the train and she was crying. I said, what's wrong? She said, I'm reading this really sad book. And she told me about it. By the time we got to our stop, we were both crying and I hadn't even read it, but I just was so moved by what she shared. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that it was a boy in Afghanistan and she was a girl in New York did not prevent her from being able to relate and identify with this, with this young person and his experience and his hardships. Kids can do that, uh, but they need the exposure. And literature is a great way to do it. 
Uh, then we can take kids on, on learning experiences where they go and visit other communities and interact with them. So we can do things to, to broaden the education of our children uh, so that they are not uh, reinforcing the stereotypes and the biases of previous generations. And it, and it taps into that idea that to, in today's schools, we have to teach those soft skills. We have to teach empathy. You know, we have to get away from so much of the focus on the core content and thinking that teaching children reading, math, writing is going to be what's going to prepare them to be successful and functional uh, adults. You know, we have to teach those soft skills like, you know, compassion. That's one of the lessons I always t talk about in my classroom. You know, I remind them we're a team and if we're going to work together as a team. We have to have compassion for one another. And we talk about what that means. That's not feeling sorry for somebody. That's feeling, feeling, putting yourself in their shoes and be willing to do what's necessary to make sure that they get out of that situation. Whatever that may be. So what, I, what I try to mean, it's not an either or. It's not that do we teach the skills and the content or do we teach these, um, you know, attributes like uh, empathy and uh, compassion. You have to do both. Um, for example, if you're, if you're teaching a lab class where kids are working together on experiments, if they don't know how to work together, then they're not going to be able to do the experiment. So it, it is, has to be integral to the learning. Kids function better when they feel like they're part of a community, when they're in a safe learning environment. Um, and they learn better because if you're afraid of making mistakes because you don't want to be embarrassed, you're going to shut down. So the social and emotional learning has to be integral to learning throughout a, a student's learning experience. It can't be treated as an add-on or uh, an extra. Mm. Absolutely. All right, Will, there, is there uh, any other questions you want to ask? A few things before we get Dr. Nagara back on to his day and to the meetings he's got later on? Um, no, I'm, I'm, I've been enlightened. I, I, I think this, uh, you know, I, I've shared with, I've spoken with my, my in-laws who were around when this uh, took place. Uh, you know, and had in-depth de in details because my statement used to be, I believe that some of our students would be better taught if they were taught, speaking of African-American students, if they were taught by African-American educators. Um, and that was one of my big pushes. And now seeing what, hearing what you're saying from a different perspective, growing up in an integrated school, how those differences can still be, you can still teach though the same way but keeps people to embrace those differences. And again, growing up, I didn't have that same type of growing up, that same type of heritage. Um, you know, being in that environment where I was, it wasn't conducive to me getting along with other races. I didn't see them too often. And my first interaction majorly was in college when I go to a predominantly white university and I felt inferior because I felt as if I had not been prepared for what the real world was bringing toward me. So you can see this enlightens me a whole lot. Well, good. I mean, thank you for that. And, uh, you know, I, I think that um, if we understood uh, the value of our diversity, we would be um, less likely to fear it. And uh, <clears throat> so I, I do want to encourage um, the listeners to, to, to recognize education is key to creating a more just and uh, equitable and humane society. And teachers are on the forefront of making that happen. So there's a lot invested in our teachers. Uh, we don't give teachers enough guidance or support or recognition for the work they do. But that doesn't mean it's not important and vital. 
Awesome. Well, we appreciate, like I said, we really appreciate the talk you gave at AIE last month and we really appreciate you giving us a little bit of your time and, and our listeners a little, a little bit of your time. Well, thank you. Thank you both for having me on and I wish you the best. Thank you for doing this show.